0: Welcome to The Honest Report, a weekly podcast analyzing media coverage of the Arab-Israeli conflict, anti-Semitism, and radical Islamic terrorism. Violence escalating between Israel and the Palestinians, hundreds of rockets fired from Gaza toward Israel people running for cover. We start the show with the breaking news that has been coming in. Israeli police are saying that at least seven people have been injured in a car ramming and stabbing attack in Tel Aviv. Hundreds of rockets fired from Gaza towards Israel. People running for cover on
1: this Tel Aviv beach as air defense systems blew rockets out the sky. Here's
0: your host, Rob Walker. Over the course of about four weeks, beginning in August 2005, Israel underwent a profoundly traumatic experience, the disengagement from Gaza. Critics at the time said it was tearing Israel apart. Supporters said it was difficult, but Israel had no choice. Before long, the vacuum left by Israel in Gaza was filled by Hamas, the Islamist terrorist group, which continues to run the coastal enclave with an iron fist. But was Hamas's takeover inevitable, or could it have been avoided? And now, 18 years later, what is the legacy of the disengagement on Israel? And how do its supporters and detractors evaluate the withdrawal from Gaza? To help us unpack the historic decision and its aftermath, we are joined by Amot Asael. He is the Jerusalem Post senior commentator and former executive editor, and he's currently a fellow at the Hartman Institute, as well as a senior editor at the Jerusalem Report. Welcome to the Honest Report podcast. Amos Asael, welcome to the Honest Report podcast. Thank you, Robert. Uh, we're very, uh, very pleased to speak with you. You really are, I think, one of Israel's um, most respected uh, scholars, uh, you know, pundits uh, on uh, on what's going on in the country. Um, you, there's obviously no shortage of things we can discuss in terms of current events uh, facing the the Jewish state at this stage. But uh, 18 years ago, in the summer of 2005. Uh, Israel was facing, uh, carrying out uh, the disengagement uh, from Gaza. Tell us a little bit about what was the atmosphere at that time.
1: Well, the atmosphere, it depends, of course, where in Israel at the time. Um, One portion of Israeli society understood the whole um, measure as a tragedy. That is, of course, first of all, the evacuees themselves, and secondly, their social circle, which broadly and, and generalistically speaking, would be the nationalist religious uh, segment of Israeli society. And um, at the other extreme end of the spectrum, there were those who cheered it um, loudly and saw in it um, the realization of the Oslo process, although it was something entirely different, and in between these two ends, I would say was the Israeli center, the the broad majority of Israelis um, who
0: uh, backed the move, but saw in it a great tragedy. And so there were uh, there were some voices at the time, uh, prior and and during. Those very difficult scenes, which I'm sure you recall um, at the uh, at the disengagement, who are saying that uh, what was happening had the potential to really rip Israeli, uh, you know, solidarity apart and and lead potentially to civil war. Um, obviously i don't have to tell you that there are same voices who are you know raising the alarm of what's happening uh today from their perspective you're, you're a well-known critic of the uh, uh, the judicial overhaul as well how did israel at the time 18 years ago heal these kinds of rifts that took place between uh different segments of israeli society those who thought that israel should have never been in Gaza in the first place and other who thought that uh, israel was making a a huge strategic and moral error by leaving Gaza. Um,
1: the major factor in that move and the major difference between that and what is happening now in Israel is that it was conceived and performed by the political right, by Ariel Sharon, by the great prophet of greater Israel and the leader of the, and founder of the Likud. Ariel Sharon a hero among Jewish settlers in Gaza and the West Bank, and a hawk who promised never to concede territory. But as prime minister, Sharon became an arch villain among his supporters when he changed his mind in 2004 about Israel's presence in the Gaza Strip. And of course, his move um, created um, opposition from within Likud, ultimately led by Benjamin Netanyahu himself, but the move was branded and introduced as one, um, uh, as a brainchild of, of Likud's leadership. That's a major difference compared with what is happening to, today. I say, uh, when I look broadly at Israeli history, um, there is a Nixon to China rule to Israeli history. If you want to go successfully uh, to a war in Israel, it had better be led by the left the way it was in 1967. If you want to go to peace, it had better be led by the right the way it was by Menachem Begin in the um, peace treaty with Egypt. And if, conversely, you go to war from the right, then you end up where Israel ended up in the First Lebanon War. And if you go to peace from the left, then you end up where Israel ended up in Oslo. And therefore, my solution to all Israeli leaders is to always ask themselves whether a move they're making is that pretentious and that um, historic. If it is, then they should seek broad national agreement before they do it. That certainly goes for what is happening now, although we're not discussing it. But getting back to the disengagement, which we are discussing, I say that this is why it was politically successful. I'm not discussing now the extent to which it was successful in terms of, Gaza and Israel, but in terms of Israel's internal politics, it was a, a success because it was, quote unquote, left-wing
0: move done by a right-wing leader. And so at the time, how was this sold to the public, uh, you know, the, the, the necessity of, um, from the government's move, the necessity of removing Israeli soldiers and civilians from the Gaza Strip? Very simple Um, It
1: was not sold as panacea and it was not sold as a key to peace. Nobody uh, told the Israeli public, this is the beginning of peace. That was the rhetoric with which Israel went to Oslo and Ariel Sharon had nothing to do with that and in fact was one of its most outspoken opponents. Um, Here the rationale was totally tactical. What they said was that um, considering that Gaza is the central and most dense and most intensely anti-Israeli-Palestinian concentration, it made no sense to have within it a very small and very vulnerable cluster of Israeli communities. That was the rationale. Defensibility and disengagement. In other words, to strive towards a future where um, most Israelis and most Palestinians live apart from each other. That was a grander vision that eld Olmert later toyed with the idea of leading into the West Bank, an idea that quickly proved um, impractical and was never implemented. But the thinking was that the more Israel manages to minimize um, the places where friction, daily friction between Israelis and Palestinians is in test, is intense, the better will be for for the safety of Israelis and also for the hygiene
0: of of Israeli-Palestinian relations. Yeah, help us understand a little bit what was happening in the Palestinian sphere in Gaza at the time. Uh, Hamas hadn't yet taken over. Who was overseeing really the sort of the the Palestinians, uh, you know, civil rights or civil lives uh, on a daily basis at the time?
1: Uh, it was uh, not a pretty situation. Um, however, uh, what happened later made it even worse because shortly after Israel uh, retreated from Gaza, um, Hamas took over violently and um, physically ousted the Palestinian Authority and uh, led Gaza not only to the anti-Israeli um, mindset where any I would been, but also to a Muslim fundamentalist um, kind of uh, format where it now is. So uh, there was nothing happy about that transition. I would add this. Um, We in the Jerusalem Post happened to have met with the late novelist Amos Oz days after uh, Ariel Sharon announced his plan. And we asked Amos Oz, who was a doyen of the Israeli left and, and the Land for Peace school of thought, we asked him what he thought about the idea of Ariel Sharon leading a retreat from Gaza. So first of all, anecdotally speaking, he was very doubtful about Sharon's sincerity, which later proved to have been full. He, he found it hard to believe that Sharon would, would retreat from the settlements that he had built himself. But set that aside, he said this, almost all at the time, he said, why retreat unilaterally? If you're retreating, if you took that decision, offer Gaza to um, Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority, give it to them and assign them with responsibility for rebuilding it. Don't create a political vacuum because you'll be inviting anarchy. And then anarchy will, of course, invite those who will best exploit it, as indeed happened. We don't know why Sharon designed it this way. It's it everything about his move, about his own motivations and about his, his, his rationale and 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 plans for what would follow will probably always remain a riddle because in all the, it seems that he didn't keep a diary and he certainly didn't discuss this in any place where the future will unveil documents. So we can only speculate. And we can speculate that he did not want, like Netanyahu today, he did not want a strong Palestinian authority and he thought, that if he ceded Gaza to the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian Authority would consolidate and become stronger. Conversely, if he doesn't do it that way, and maybe even by implication, indirectly, hands it over to Hamas, then he uh, intensifies the rivalry between the two of them. Maybe that's what he wanted. We cannot know.
0: So, I mean, other than than, uh, Prime Minister Sharon at the time, what were other members of the Israeli military infrastructure thinking at the time was going to happen following the removal of uh, Israeli citizens from Gaza. I mean, if it wasn't going to be the Palestinian authority taking over, then it was going to be a power vacuum. Um, Is this just hindsight 2020? I mean, you're describing this, um, but where were the sort of key decision makers other than the prime minister at the time? uh, Were they saying this as well? Everybody
1: had a different uh, thinking. I, I remember, for instance, that, that we in the Jerusalem Post met in those days with Shimon Peres, who was, along with Labour, were brought into Sharon's government um, shortly after he announced the plan. And Shimon Peres said, though, the disengagement idea that it's part of the Oslo vision, which, of course, it was not. It was despair of uh, harmony with the Palestinians. That's how I interpreted Sharon's move. Um, Although Sharon himself later said uh, that he uh, had changed in his mind concerning Palestinian statehood and became a supporter of the idea uh, of Palestinian statehood. But Shimon Peres at the time was saying about this engagement that it is the continuation of the Oslo vision. I didn't see it this way then and i don't see it now i think it was the oslo vision was all about israel and the palestinians becoming neighbors living in harmony and this was about neighbors living in disharmony obviously the question is what if sharon had not fallen ill so shortly after this engagement would gaza had spewed all that fire at israel even with him there, and had it done so, how would he have responded? I have no doubt that he would have immediately responded with extreme violence, which is not what Old o- Olmert, his successor, did in that similar situation. He, he was very slow to respond, and uh, I think, um, uh, I think uh, that was extremely lamentable.
0: And so here we are, 20 years later, where Israel's in this situation, of course, every couple of years, uh, having to conduct these, quote-unquote, you know, lawn mowing exercises, having to go back and um, engage with uh, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Is that the foreseeable future um, that Israel has to deal with uh, in Gaza? Or are there other alternatives that can help Israel provide peace for its residents uh, in the southern part of the country?
1: I think that all of us centrist Israelis, meaning both from left center to uh, right center through the center itself, all of us have been humbled by um, the past three decades' experiences. In other words, from um, the day after the Oslo Accords signing on the White House lawn, we've been humbled in the sense that we learned the hard way that Peace with the Palestinians cannot be made to come without Palestinian will. And no matter what Israel offers or who leads it. And um, we have experimented with this empirically. And uh, our experience has been that uh, their leaders were either totally hostile to the idea of peace with Israel or incapable of, of effectively fighting for it. That is why our conclusion here has creepingly become our consensus, has become that we cannot initiate uh, peace with the Palestinians as long as they don't sincerely want it. Um, uh, Israelis like me, who have consistently and openly um, backed the idea of the two-state solution, do concede today that we don't have whom to do this with, as things currently stand. Having analyzed the present this way, I do say that, um, and I have no predictions concerning the future, uh, sadly, but I do have um, um, a vision um, that, um, of course, there is a grand vision of the Palestinians changing their spots and Sunday wanting peace, which, a day which I think will come, I doubt, in my time or even in my children's time, but it will come. Um, but before that, I think there is another format, and that would involve Egypt. Egypt can. Create a swath in the northern Sinai, which is a beautiful um, a strip of coast, Mediterranean coast, immediately to the west of Gaza. In other words, totally contiguous with Gaza, Egypt can dedicate that for a kind of economic Palestinian, uh, sorry, economic development that would benefit the Palestinians. The northern Sinai, which is currently very sparsely settled, can become a um, uh, riviera filled with uh, uh, tourism resorts and with industrial parks and uh, connected to Gaza with a railway which once ran there back in the Ottoman and the British eras. It just needs to be restored. And there's a very um, deep uh, hinterland over there that could create great space, physical space for uh, for the development of an economy that would feed the entire Gaza script and make it prosper. Such a thing can happen unilaterally. The Egyptians can do it. Uh, the international community would happily foot all the bills and the Palestinian population would happily go there to earn a livelihood. Uh, when such a thinking was led by Israel, back in Shimon Peres' premiership, Following Yitzhak Rabin's assassination, during that brief premi- uh, premiership, he tried to promote what was called the Industrial Parks Plan, which was a plan that he devised and was backed by the World Bank and uh, secured financing from all the great powers, of, from Japan to Canada, through Europe, and needless to say, Uncle Sam uh, and Canada. And uh, and he uh, in that plan add um, uh, a whole um, cluster uh, or strip rather of industrial zones from Janine in the north to the southern Gaza strip in the south. And uh, the idea was to make the Palestinians this way gainfully employed. Uh, it's very easy uh, for um, uh, a globalized economy that has put to work hundreds of millions of people throughout the third world. This is hardly A million people, uh, of working people, um, that this would uh, have to put to work. It was easy to do financially and industrially speaking. It didn't happen then because Israel was involved. If this is done not with Israel involved and not on soil that is uh, even close to Israeli uh, control or, or rule, maybe it can happen.
0: Well, I, I think that that would be uh, an extraordinary thing to see in the future. You know, um, we still see headlines and, and news articles today uh, still describing uh, Israel erroneously, I should add, uh, as if it was uh, continuing to uh, have a presence in Gaza, referring to Israel's occupation of Gaza and so on. And um, and I think that that kind of uh, uh, inaccuracy is... Uh...
1: Yeah, that, that always makes me laugh. Uh, how can you occupy a place without being there? And then wow. when they tell me Israel is laying Gaza at the siege, I... I... Tell them that cartographically speaking, um, uh, Gaza has, it's a rectangle whose one um, uh, segment faces uh, the sea, two indeed face Israel, but a fourth faces Egypt. So, how can Israel lay siege to a country that it does not fully encircle?
0: Well, thank you, uh, Amotasa, a fascinating discussion, um, both for your uh, your views on uh, what took place uh, 18 years ago and uh, the vision for what uh, what potentially could take place in the future. Thank you so much again. Thank you. My pleasure. And that's today's edition of the Honest Report Podcast. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to our mailing list, our podcast channel, and follow us on social media for the most up-to-date news. If you like what you've heard, please consider a donation to support our continued efforts at www.honestreporting.ca slash donate. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.